Today's episode is brought to you by DEI Navigator from the Diversity Movement. Here's the deal. More than 80% of organizations have already taken action on diversity, equity, and inclusion. But if you're one of the people who's suddenly in charge of leading those DEI efforts, there's a good chance you're feeling overwhelmed, confused, and alone. That's why the diversity movement created DEI Navigator. This new monthly membership service is designed exclusively for small to medium-sized businesses who are committed to DEI action and results. It's everything you need all in one place. Access to proven business leaders and certified diversity executives, expert curated content, how-to guides, training, and a community of peers sharing their ideas and lessons learned. All at a fraction of the cost of hiring a full-service DEI consultancy. For more information, head on over to thediversitymovement.com slash AU. That's thediversitymovement.com slash AU. All right, let's get to the show. Hey, this is Jason Gilligan with EarFluence, which produces this podcast. And before we get started on today's episode, I wanted to set the stage for you. This episode was recorded live on top of the Durham Hotel in front of the Google for Startups Black Founders Exchange 2022 cohorts. Your host, Naya Powell, is a Black Founders Exchange graduate, and she brings on a panel of BFE grads and advisors to get their stories and perspectives on raising capital. It was the hardest time in my life. I just felt the whole weight of the company like on my shoulders. You can't do it for just the money, right? You have to have that meaning, uh, that feedback from people. You're gonna be with this person through thick and thin, through sickness and health, till death or an exit do you part. Welcome to Equity Raise, leveling the landscape for diverse founders and their VCs. Each year, less than 3% of venture capital funding is invested in startups led by founders of color and women. I am your host, Naya Fela Powell, the founder and CEO of Utopia Spa and Global Wellness. As a black woman who has experienced the headwinds, ups and the downs of fundraising, I'm excited to share these conversations with you. I'm really excited to get into this today. So we're joined by Tony Wilkins, the founding partner of Standing Oaks Venture Partners. Also, Sonia Ebron, the founder and CEO of Courtroom 5, and April Johnson, co-founder of event tech startup Happy. So as we get into it a little bit, I'd love to just kind of start with hearing a little bit about each of your journeys, and then we'll uh, talk to you a little bit, Tony, about, you know, your investor journey. I know you don't like the word angel. You shared that earlier. And I love that because you were like, a lot of the conversations are not angelic. Correct. (laughs) So, so we appreciate your candor and honesty. So I'd love to start off with just talking to our two founders, starting with April and Sonia. So April, why don't you start with just telling us a little bit about your founder journey? You know, how did you decide to start Happy? And tell us a little bit about what Happy is. Awesome. Thanks so much, Naya. Um, So yeah, so Happy is essentially um, an automated event planning platform for corporate teams and groups. So designed just to make team engagement easy, a lot more data-driven. That was not what it was originally. Um, That's where we are now. So um, my founder story, I quit my job in 2018. I was a corporate lawyer, real estate attorney um, at a big firm and started laying like the the roots for Happy while I was still at that firm. 
at the time, Happy was a happy hour app. It was a consumer-based happy hour app to help people find the best experiences for them individually. Did all this work, quit my job in 2018, launched the app in April 2019, met my current co-founder in February of 2019, had a really bad um, former co-founder in 2019, lost all my money in 2019. Literally ended up um, at the end of 2019 with about $200 in my bank account, had to figure out what do I do? How do we rebuild? Where do we go from here? Going to 2020 um, and don't have a platform anymore because the tech is failing. We have thousands of users on it. We have all these restaurants and bar partners. Um, and so now have to pivot pretty quickly. At the same time, the pandemic hits. Um, and so it actually came at a really good time for us because we had no choice but to shut down the platform, right? And so now we're like, well, what do we do? And at that point, it was really important for us to get back to our mission, our why. Um, and it's always been about like, how do we create these incredible experiences that really resonate with people that improve their quality of life? Um, and so we started originally back with, um, with virtual in the consumer space, connecting those consumers that we had to the restaurants and bars that were already using our platform. And we did it really, really well. Um, and we realized, well, if we're doing this really well on the consumer side, how do we make a bigger impact and how do we make more money? And so we quickly pivoted to corporate in June of 2020 with Google actually being our first customer. Um, and it took off from there. So 2020, we brought in over $200,000 in revenue. 2021, over a million dollars in revenue. And we were profitable. Um, we ended up the year with about, I think, seven full-time employees. We were offering benefits. And we did all of this before raising a single dollar wow. of outside capital. That's incredible. So I, I tell that story because I think our journey was a little bit different because by the time we went to raise... Um, we did have a pretty big client list. We had worked with over 150 customers by that time, Google, Salesforce, Accenture, all these law firms. Um, and we're really good at selling, right? Really good at knowing how to talk to corporate, how to, how to you know, really close those deals. But we knew we needed to scale. Mm -hmm. And we knew that the way that we were um, providing our service was not scalable. And I quit my job making about 300K at this law firm to build a billion dollar business. That was always the goal. If I wanted to be a millionaire, I would have stayed at the firm, became partner, lived a good life, right? Yeah. This was always meant to be something that really just like changed the way that we like feel about experiences, the way we plan them, the way we engage with them. Um, and so we knew we needed to figure out how to scale. So we knew we wanted to go to an accelerator. We got into Techstars um, November of 2021, graduated in February of 2022. The only reason we went to Techstars was to raise. Yeah. Um, we knew that we did not know like how to tell the story, did not have the network at that time to raise. So went in with that sole mission. We came out into February. We closed our round. All commitments were in by May of 2022. Mm -hmm. um, and we closed a pre-seed round of 1.6 million. We have a tier one investor on our cap table, True Ventures, um, have an incredible, incredible group of investors. And I'm just really excited now about the, the path of happy going forward. And so, but that's, that's how we got to our raise. That's incredible. So kudos to you and congratulations on Thank all you. of your successes. And so you were really good and you are really good at sales. You just shared that. So tell us where the sales skill set came in. Was it from yourself, a team member? And really, how did you get that first account with Google? Yeah. So for me, um, it came from the corporate like law experience. Right. So I just knew how to like talk the talk. Right. And we also worked with a lot of law firms at that point. So I knew their pain points really well. I knew who to talk to. I knew how to find the emails. We did a ton of cold emailing, right? And people responded. And we still do a ton of cold emails. Our last cold email sequence we just sent, 65% open rate. 
wow. unheard of, mm-hmm. right? Four meetings booked out of 52 emails that went out. Mm-hmm. Um, we're just really good at like how to communicate mm-hmm. with our customers. And I think it just comes from, again, that, that corporate background. Um, but Google actually found us through press. So okay. they did not find us. Through, um, we did not do cold outreach to them. It was actually Jason Scott. I was just telling someone yeah. else here about that. So he saw a story on Happied and was like, wow, we need this. Yeah. Um, and so he brought us in for actually one of the Google for Startups cohorts. And funny story, we had no clue what we were doing then. <laughs> Absolutely no clue. Um, this is, again, during COVID, all online events at the time. And so we, need, we knew we needed to ship these kits. We had had a partner who was shipping kits like for the events. They were doing a bad job. So we're like, we're going to do it ourselves. We shipped coop glasses with no bubble wrap, no anything. Um, so like 50% of them broke. Wow. Um, but at the time it was like height of COVID. So it's like, you know, UPS was a mess. And so people gave us a lot of grace. And it's one of those things like that was like our true, true, like early kind of like product. But um, yeah, so we, we made a lot of mistakes, but had had a lot of grace at that time. Beautiful. So the timing was perfect on so many levels. So I think that that speaks um, volumes when founders can actually pivot and thrive even in the middle of a pandemic. So what does success to you look like? Yeah, so success for me now um, is really like, where we see happy is the same way that like you would not do HR, you would not do accounting, you would not do your CRM, right? Without your trusted tool, you would not even think about your team engagement, like planning and events without happy. We see it as this ultimate happiness hub. So right now we're starting with events, but your travel, your gifting, um, your workshops, everything that you're doing to engage your team will fall under happy. And what we love about it is that like every single company does events and the majority of them, their event cycle is broken. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not just a U.S. based problem. It's an international problem. We've worked with companies all over the world. And wow. so we see it as being that 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 tool that you just would not even think about doing your events without. Beautiful. So, Sonia. Would love to hear a little bit about your journey. Uh, tell us about Courtroom 5. It looks like you started in 2017. Yes. So tell us a little bit about what prompted you to start Courtroom 5 mm-hmm. and just tell the listeners who you are and what you do. So Courtroom 5 is reimagining delivery of legal services uh, in the United States. I'm a PhD electrical engineer. I found myself in court without a lawyer. As a part of that process, I saw a lot of people disproportionately look like me, who also couldn't afford a lawyer, but had no hope of getting any justice in that system without one. And so I wanted to build Courtroom 5 because, you know, in a democracy, you shouldn't need a PhD to get a fair hearing in court. So we have uh, built a technology that helps those people mimic the behavior of a lawyer as they are managing their own cases. And that then allows them to hire a real lawyer on only the most difficult and complex parts of the case, and they end up spending maybe 10% of what they would have spent hiring a lawyer for the whole process. So that's courtroom five. Our, um, our journey has been exciting. <laughs> we, uh, we did get started about five years ago. My co-founder and I had similar experiences. We had represented ourselves in court, you know, and, and, and again, seeing those folks who Uh, hadn't done well. We had also, in some circumstances, hadn't done well. And we're just really committed to solving this problem. But we had no money, uh, very few uh, skills, even with the PhDs. And she's a PhD librarian uh, and information scientist. So, you know, we had that book learning and some experience educating adults as academics, but we didn't know a whole lot about running a startup. 
Uh, and so we started with a WordPress blog, just sharing some of the uh, learnings that we had made uh, in court. Found out people were willing to pay for that, and they gave us feedback on the challenges that they were having, and we built out tools to help them. So now we've got a system that really works uh, very well for people. But it hasn't been easy. Again, uh, the, the problem, very difficult problem that we're seeking to, to solve was how to help people level up when there's an experienced litigator on the other side who knows that system, right? And so we have, um, uh, we've definitely had some challenges, but we've also had a huge amount of support. We've got now six people on the team, uh, heavy duty engineering, business development. We actually use lawyers as salespeople, right? Uh, because if you might uh, understand, if you get in legal trouble, where's your first stop? A law firm, right? And you get some sticker shock and realize you can't pay them, but we're incentivizing those lawyers to actually refer those people to courtroom five, right, where they can monetize them at a lower uh, rate. And we don't charge lawyers for that at all, so. You, you mentioned, and we know this, right, the disparities in terms of the legal system, especially for African-Americans. What was it that made you decide to pivot from being an engineer and actually enter into this space? Because I don't think we've heard that yet. Engineering is a wonderful field, and I love teaching it, right? I didn't really have a love for power lines and transformers, <laughs> right? I did it. Um, I published uh, some really interesting stuff. I was uh, focused on artificial intelligence applications, machine learning applications, and power distribution. Great. But I didn't have a love for it. I did not have a love for faculty politics either. Mm. And so this is, Courtroom 5 is actually my third entrepreneurial adventure, I'll call it, okay. right? And there was a tech startup before, but I had done some stuff in the energy space uh, that was um, somewhat lucrative. I had some fun, more press and travel and that sort of stuff than money. But nonetheless, you learn your lessons, right? There are, uh, there, it's all an experiment. Um, but so when I ran into this problem, Right. I was intimately affected. I understood the pain of getting your butt kicked in court by somebody that, you know, in my opinion, shouldn't even been in that kind of court. They're supposed to be fighting corporate for corporations and all that. Uh, not against average people. Right. You know, you all know that um, image of the skinny kid on the beach that gets can't uh, sand kicked in their face by a big bully. You know, that's what it felt like, yeah. you know, and. I didn't like that. I don't, you know, fool me once, okay? Yeah. And so I learned what I needed to to make sure it didn't happen again to me. But I knew that there were a lot of people that just were not going to have those options. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I like hard problems. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I got, you know, addicted to it. I started building a solution. Y'all are entrepreneurs. You know there's no way you're going to go take somebody's job in a serious way after the experiences that you're having. And so, you know, I just got addicted to solving the problem, and here I am today. Beautiful. What has been one of the biggest lessons learned that you've learned so far that you can share with these founders? Oh, you, uh, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to fall flat on your face. It's going to happen, 100%, guaranteed. The trick is to just get back up and run the next experiment. Mm -hmm. You know, take your lessons from it and keep going. There is not a company that doesn't pivot. Mm -hmm. Right. It just isn't one that succeeds. The ones that don't pivot are the ones that fail. OK, uh, as a result. So just take your lumps and keep going. It's persistence that matters. All right. I have a question um, for both of you before we move over to Tony. Um, what would you say? Well, let's go back to you, April. What would you say has been your proudest accomplishment to date? Oh, that's a good question. Um, 
I think actually like the the impact that we make um, on on the on the folks that we serve. So um, we get kind of caught up a lot of times in like the work of like what we're doing. Um, but sometimes we get the opportunity to actually attend an event, mm-hmm. um, whether it's in person or online. And it brings me back to like our why, like why why we do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really to just help people connect and have those moments. And so to see that, to like see the feedback of like people just really like having a good time with one another um, makes me proud. And to know that like it went from something that was in my head Mm -hmm. to something that like these big companies all over the world now use and we're like making an impact at those organizations. Like that's that's what makes me really proud. And it should. And we talked about this earlier this morning in our wellness session, you know, that as founders and entrepreneurs, a lot of times we can get a little beat up. (laughs) (laughs) by the world, by our clients, by investors. But one of the things you said is that it was an idea in your head and you made it a reality. And I think that's something that we should always just remember, right? As founders and as entrepreneurs that we're innovators and that we're visionaries and that we've done something that most people will never do. We've created something that just started with a thought. So I love that you shared that. So Sonia, back to you. What would you say has been your proudest accomplishment so far to date with Courtroom 5? Survival. <laughs> We're here, right? Um, no, I know. You know, April said it. It's it's the impact. Mm-hmm. Um, hearing and we serve consumers, right? right. Uh, we serve people who are about to lose their house, who's you know losing custody of their kids, that sort of thing. And so when we hear from them, you saved my house, you saved my kids, you know that sort of thing. And we didn't do the work, right? Mm-hmm. They're the ones putting mm-hmm. in the hours, but we've made it, you know, accessible to them. And mm-hmm. just hearing that mm-hmm. keeps us going, Absolutely. right? You, you know, the money matters yeah. big time yeah. and definitely, you know, keeps us going, but you can't do it for just the money, right? right? You right. have to have that meaning, uh, that feedback from people as well. So I'm just really proud of the people we've helped. Yeah. Perfect segue. Money matters. So let's talk to the money man. I said wealth walking, wealth man walking earlier when I saw him. So Tony, tell us a little bit about your journey. How did you get into this space of being an investor? I'm not going to use the word angel because you made it clear earlier. So I'm intentional. I'm a good listener. So how did you get into this space? Because we really appreciate your presence um, in our community just as an advisor and an investor and helping us to know what to do and not to do. Um, But how did you get here? Pivoting. Yeah. Okay. I went into electrical engineering too, and for those who are on the podcast, you didn't see me genuflect when Sonia said that she's a PhD because I just barely escaped with a BS in electrical engineering. So somebody who's got a PhD, I'm gonna have to touch you later on just so that I I did say I did it. But thank you, dear. I feel the power. So I wanted to always have a job. I'm the oldest of six boys, grew up on the south side of Chicago. I saw my more than my fair share of broke and broken people on the mm-hmm. street who uh, didn't have any hope, didn't have any place to go, didn't have any money. Mm-hmm. But I was fortunate in that my mother and my father were very supportive uh, to the extent that they give me one sixth of the time that we have for all six boys in the house. And from that, I realized I needed to be independent. Mm-hmm. So to me, the best and most straight line between where I was and being independent was to get a job, to, be, to get an electrical engineering degree, mm and have a job for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And at 18, which is when most of us think we have the highest percentage of what we need to know to be successful (laughs) for the rest of our life, I thought, well, I'm good. Uh, I got an amazing offer from Chrysler Corporation in Detroit. I was living in this beautiful apartment downtown that I could afford. Uh, I enjoyed my job. 
I've always enjoyed working on cars. Here I am at Chrysler Corporation working for Lee Iacocca. We're going to save Chrysler all together. And I got laid off after the first year. Wow. And I thought, okay, to Sonia's point, this was a problem to be solved. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't that I always needed a job. At that point, I realized I don't need a job. I need a source of income that cannot be disrupted by one person walking into my office and mm -hmm. saying it's over. Mm -hmm. So I knew enough to say I needed to either own a company or invest in a company or be partners with somebody or have multiple sources of income. So that was really the genesis. And I was at the time 23 years old. So I switched and went to business school in Chicago, worked my way through, went into asset management, which was exciting, lots of money, uh, interesting people. And I kind of forgot that I was trying to solve for having one person fire me. Right. And then I realized, oh no, I'm still in the same spot, just mm -hmm. making more money. And I put a deadline, like I tell a lot of people, if you're going to do something, put a deadline on it, put a deadline on it, and put a performance metric on it. Mm -hmm. So I said, by the time I'm 35, mm -hmm. I will have invested in a company to start my journey as an investor. Mm. And in November of 1991, I invested in a young black uh, corporate executive mm -hmm. who I knew through a lot of different ways, so we could test his background and a partner of mine and I invested what at that time was five years of savings in that business. Wow. So I said, if you're gonna go, you might as well go big because mm -hmm. I'm not going back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That business hit the skids and went to zero in 18 months. Wow, jeez. But like playing football, you get hit in the head. You either strap the helmet on tighter and go back in or you take it off and say, let me try badminton. <laughs> and I was not going to try badminton. There was no going back from investing in early stage companies, which I lovingly refer to as my intelligent lottery tickets, mm -hmm. where I get the opportunity to improve the probability of a good outcome. Mm -hmm. So it was many years of experimenting and testing and trying various entrepreneurs, getting to know what people meant when they said a certain thing, being able to get the skill of reading entrepreneurs, mm -hmm all at a level where I could do experiments that wouldn't kill me, try things that wouldn't break me. Mm -hmm. And after about 10, 12 years of doing that, while I was working in my asset management jobs and moving up the ladder there, I, uh, I finally found an, uh, an entrepreneur. And just like April said, this was perfect. I knew everything about that business. Mm -hmm. I knew she knew everything about that business. Mm -hmm. Uh, we had a we had a big open rate on our on our cold calls because we knew exactly what pain they were feeling. We could reach right in and say, "Does it hurt here?" And they mm -hmm. would scream. Mm -hmm. We go, "Oh, we've got something for you." Mm -hmm. So that was very helpful to know what that experience was. And Sonia, you said you experienced it yourself and didn't want to deal with that. We knew exactly how to to fix that, and we went from piece of paper, basically an idea, to an exit. And it took 10 years, mm -hmm. and that was really, uh, that was really what I would say the experience that taught me that I was not going backwards to the corporate environment, that I was always going to be, even though I spent another 10, 15 years in corporate, mm -hmm. it became a smaller and smaller percentage of where I spent my energy, energy. every day. So you've seen a lot, 65 
Let's take a quick break. While you know me as the host of the Equity Raise podcast, I'm also the founder and CEO of Utopia Spa and Global Wellness. As a founder and former corporate professional, I truly understand how stressed we are. With 72% of entrepreneurs suffering with mental health challenges, I knew that we needed to do something in creating a digital wellness platform that's addressing global burnout and the future of work and wellness. Utopia Spawn Global Wellness offers live and on-demand virtual classes, such as mindfulness, yoga, Pilates, cultural movement, wellness coaching, workshops, and retreats. You see, we're helping people show up as their healthiest and happiest selves daily. Also helping employers achieve their talent, retention, recruitment, and productivity goals. Our multicultural holistic approach to wellness celebrates mindful diversity, inclusion, and belonging. To learn how you can get started today, head on over to utopiasgw.com. Again, utopiasgw.com. Now let's get back to the show. Investments to date. Right. So what would you define as some of the markers uh, for success that now you, I'm sure, can see it a mile away, um, whether a founder is, you know, moving in the direction of success in a company that you would want to invest in or not? What does that look like? So listening to these two marvelous founders, I have to say the short answer is passion and vision. You know, you all were not going backwards after you discovered that there was an issue, just there was no reverse gear. There was no reverse, nothing, no rear view mirrors. Just, we're going. So this sense of burning the ships in the harbor is that feeling mm-hmm. that you get. Mm-hmm. Now, it's one thing to say, I'm gonna do something, but then the next thing is Maya Angelou says, if, when people show you who they are, believe, believe them. Believe them, absolutely. So activity mm-hmm. and coachability mm-hmm. are probably the two primary criteria that I look for. Mm-hmm. But the ones I keep in my hip pocket are the, the big six, which are integrity, coachability, chemistry, resourcefulness, resilience, and responsiveness. Mm. Love all of that. So that last one, responsiveness, it, it kind of just really like stands out to me because when you say responsiveness, tell us what you mean by that. Great. If I text you. Yes. I probably expect you to text me right back. Okay. Okay. If I send you an email, uh, you get back to me in 24 hours, that's fine. Yeah. If I call you, yeah. given today's technology on most people's phones, yeah. probably means something serious is going on. I expect you to call me back that day. It's mm-hmm. um, good to hear y'all. Yeah. If people, mm-hmm. a good micro test for me, responsiveness is the cheapest, easiest micro test. Mm-hmm. Because over the course of maybe a month or two of doing due diligence with somebody, everybody's busy. Yeah. I like to think I'm as busy as anybody else, maybe more so. Yeah. So if I can get back to you. Yes you should be able to get back to me. And if you can't get back to me in kind of the same speed that I get back to you before I write the check, mm-hmm. there's, no, there's no possibility that you're gonna act right for the 10 <laughs> years after I wrote the check yeah. for us to exit. Yeah. So it's a simple micro test, kind of like checking, does, do they have all their teeth? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a simple one. So, you know, I, I, that resonates with me. I had a conversation, um, with an investor two days ago. And I made sure, even with the pace of my day yesterday, 
that I got that follow-up out. It was 10.30 at night, but I got it out because I understand that responsiveness speaks volumes. Mm -hmm. So it's good to hear exactly what that looks like. Yep, that's yeah, that's it. All right. So if there are things that you've seen, or you, I know you have, can you share with us things that you've seen, observed, witnessed that made you, maybe you were close to pursuing or considering a, an investment mm -hmm. and you just decided like, as soon as I saw that, I checked out. Oh yeah. Dogmatism. Hmm. If people say this is the way it is and there's no other way around it. Mm -hmm. Well, in an environment where you're creating something new and we don't even know what the chances, the problems are we're going to face mm. uh, need to be dealt with. Mm -hmm. If you're sure you've got the answer now, it's highly likely you're going to be wrong as the environment shifts. Mm -hmm. So if somebody is dogmatic about something, I usually go, hey, good luck to you. I'm sure you're going to find somebody else who will be successfully supporting you, but it's not a good fit for me. Yeah. Yeah. I can't help but to think of or ask this next question. So I'm sure I'm not the only one in the room that aspires to be in Tony's seat one day and to be able to invest in other brilliant black founders and, and founders of color. What would you advise for those that aspire to be investors in the future, you know, in terms of building ourselves up to that place? What would you recommend? Write checks. Write checks. Okay. You cannot learn how to swim without getting wet. Mm -hmm. And you cannot theorize how to become wealthy without writing checks. Mm -hmm. And Sonia, as you said, you will fail 100%. You will fall on your face. Mm -hmm. I think that I have probably learned more from the checks where I slapped my forehead and went, oh, what was I thinking? Than those rarer events where I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening. Mm -hmm. But you have to play to... You, you can't win if you don't play. Right. But I like to think of every event in terms of meeting with somebody or investing with somebody as being, I'm going to get something out of it. It's either going to be triumph, mm -hmm. which doesn't happen as much, but it tastes really, really good when they call you up and say, can you confirm your wire instructions? Mm -hmm. Or tuition. You know, sometimes that tuition comes from a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's more painful than not. Sometimes it's more expensive than not. But if you're not constantly walking forward toward that idea of success that you have for yourself and learning from the things that don't work out well and enjoying the things that do, it's, it's not going to work out. Right. Right. All right. So I'm going to bring it back to you, ladies. So, April, tell us a little bit about your fundraising journey. You were very successful with Happy. You had already had over a million dollars in revenue. So when and how and why did you decide that it was time to start fundraising? It was all about scale and how we achieve scale quickly. Um, so we did turn a profit in 2021. It was not enough to hire. Um, it was not enough to build. It was not enough to get us to our next milestones, um, to grow at the, at the speed that we wanted to grow. So that's why we chose to fundraise. We specifically decided to go the VC route because we wanted to surround ourselves with like folks that have done this at the highest level. We wanted those networks. We wanted them to be like in it with us. And we were very like specific with the types of investors that we wanted, like what type of value that they could add to Happy. So that's why we raised. In terms of just like how and like in like that journey, it was really just so network driven. And so whenever people ask me about raising and how do you do it, 
the first piece is like the network. You have to know like who's even writing checks at your stage, in your space, um, and you need those introductions. Number two, learning how to tell your story in a way that resonates with investors. Mm-hmm. They want to know how they're going to get their money back. Yep. Like that's what they care about. Yes, yep. they care about you as a founder, but they need to see like the vision and how they're, how they're going to get their money back. Mm-hmm. How are you going to blow this up, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so learning how to speak in that way um, being comfortable with your story and finding investors that just like get you. So we had like a whole lot that we were going through with like, are we SaaS? Are we tech enabled service? We have the services component. Do we have to hide it? Like, what do we have to do? And it was a lot of like trial and error um, and just getting really comfortable and confident in who we are and how we tell that story. And once we got there and we knew, like if someone wasn't messing with us, fine, like go. Um, but we found our tribe pretty quickly, like once we just like keyed in on this is what we're doing and this is who we are. The third piece I do tell people though, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, Naya, it was the hardest time in my life. The stress was out, out of the window. Um, I was having physical manifestations of the stress where I've never had these things happen to me before. Had to go to the doctor all the time. I didn't know what was going on with my body. I just felt the whole weight of the company like on my shoulders because I built, I'd, I'd sold it as like, hey, we're going to scale. We're going to do this, right? And so we, at that point, it was like, we need to do this or else we're going to, you know, what, what are we going to do? And so I, I tell people like now, like looking back, when you're raising, also like really take care of yourself yes. um, and make sure that you prioritize that. I did not. And it did not, it did not go well for me personally. Mm-hmm. So we closed quickly, like got it done. How um, quickly? So we had all of our commitments in about two months. What? Um, yeah, it took a little bit more like time for some of the like wires to come yeah. through. Um, but we were done with that like pretty quickly, okay. um, which was great. But yeah, it was it was by far the the hardest time um, of my life. Thank you so much for sharing that and being transparent. And this is something that we talked about in our morning mindfulness and yoga session. Just the importance of self care for founders and how hard the journey is and. For my founder friends and family that have raised, most of them have told me and shared with me how their self-care took a hit, their mental health took a hit, shut them down. So thank you for sharing that. And yours was two months, you know, so for a lot of founders, especially black founders and black female founders, the journey is a lot longer. Just quick glimpse. When you say you weren't taking care of yourself, share with us what that looked like and share with us on the four month side of not being in, in a good place, what that looked like. Because I think it's important for us to know the reality of it, of how important this is. Yeah, so for not taking care of myself, um, I think one, like as a founder, you often like tie up your self-worth with your company, right? At this point, it was like on 10, because it was like, not only is it my company, it's like, can I do this thing that is literally 100% on me? So I have a co-founder who's amazing, right? But as CEO, it's my job to, to raise this money. Um, and so it was just not being able to separate myself from it. It like consumed me day and night. I, every conversation I had, I'm replaying it back in my head. Oh, did I do this? Did I say that? Did I lose this opportunity? Oh my gosh, we're never going to raise what's going to happen. And so just not even being able to like take that step back, wasn't doing like my workouts and things like that, like that I should have been doing. It was just literally like all consuming. So that's, that's the way that affected me then. Now, like coming out of it, it, it took a long time because my health had like deteriorated. Like I thought like I, I thought there was like I thought, I thought I had a chronic illness. Right. Like my body was like coming out with hives, which I wasn't allergic to anything. And so I'm like, oh, my gosh, what's going on? And it took a couple months even after that. Like what they say, like with anxiety and stress like that is like once like 
you get over that hump of like where you break this like thing, it's like it's hard to get back. And mm-hmm. I, I'd already broken that like chasm, right? So mm-hmm. at this point, everything was just kind of piling on, piling on, piling on. Um, and so now it was it was harder to do the work after to try to get myself back together. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, I'm there now. Google for startups is actually amazing. They have like um, they have like mental health like yeah. help um, as a part of the program. So that's been amazing. I have a therapist and I've like really been like taking that seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, also a career coach because it's mm-hmm. like just separating myself, like my self-worth from the, the business world. Absolutely. And we talked about that this morning. And so thank you for just kind of bringing that back. Um, it is so important that we as founders are investing in our self-care. And Sonali and I talked about even just the stigma for black and brown people around mental health and wellness. So I always just really get excited when I hear people share their journey and their transparency around even embracing therapy because it's our mental health is really the most important of all other areas of health. And if we don't protect that, everything else will continue to fall apart. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, so Sonia, tell us a little bit in terms of your fundraising journey. When did you start? Why did you start? And just kind of how it's been for you. I think um, for me, I we always understood uh, that we were going to go VC. We've got a $30 billion market at our price point, right? Latent uh, market. Uh, and it was going to take serious capital for us to, uh, to capture that market. We intend to be the only player uh, in the market, right? And so I started fundraising with friends and family. And I don't come from wealth, right? Mm-hmm. And my sister gave me $1,000 mm-hmm. know, that I was grateful for, mm-hmm. right? That sort of thing. Over and over and over, every conversation with anybody with money, right, was valuable to us. It wasn't so much about getting the check, although it was valuable when it happened. It was about learning. Uh, you were finding the story, right? Every startup has a, uh, a story. and It changes as you go, right? But investors, we learned, are looking to invest in the next point in your story. Mm-hmm. Not where you are, right? Mm-hmm. But in that next step. Mm-hmm. And so we learn just to be able to connect with people and to tell that story. Ultimately, it's a numbers game. Um, you know, so we needed to talk to a lot of people. We still do. I'm fundraising all the time, right? There, there are those um, discrete uh, times when you're raising a round, right? Like the two-month period. Mm-hmm. Congratulations on that. Two months is heroic. <laughs> it's wonderful. Um, but, you know, so there are the rounds, but then there's all the work. Cause, you know, we didn't have networks either. So you're always just building network, talking to folks. But we knew early on we were going to have to do that. Didn't know how to do it. Learned a lot with Techstars, all right? So there's a, actually a recipe to this thing that works, you know. Uh, but, you know, we, we just, we, we decided that that was going to be at least my uh, primary job going forward. Just had to do it. How has it been for you to pitch as a black female founder? <sighs> you have more, you're gonna have more calls as a black female founder, period. You just gotta talk to more people. There's just folks that, uh, to April's point, won't get it, just are not gonna get it. And so the job in doing a pitch is to figure out is it one of those and let's not waste our time, right? Uh, I have to like the people I take money from. Because this is, you know, I'm not getting married, right? I mean, this is a long-term relationship. And so, you know, I, my job in the first five or so minutes is, you know, am I going to like this conversation, right? Am I going to want another one? It's about me, not about getting the check. Am I going to be able to work with this person? Mm-hmm. 
in, in April, I'd like to ask you the same question. How's your journey been? Obviously very successful, but with, you know, pitching as a black female founder. And I would like to hear some specifics because I think it could be very helpful for the founders and the folks that are listening because I have had different conversations and they can be very different. Sometimes it's not going to be just a, let's get to know each other. It's going to be like, give me all the, all the data, the facts, and you better speak fast. And so it can be very different. So tell us what your journey has been like. Our, our journey, I felt like it was it was generally positive. I think I, I went into it with knowing like all of the stats, right, about mm-hmm. black women and fundraising and mm-hmm. how little capital we get. And so I did have that in the back of my mind. Um, but my strategy was specifically like not to like think about that, right? Mm-hmm. Like go in as like you're going to kill it and they're going to understand this vision, right? And really kind of like key in on that. But with that being said, um, there were a couple of instances where people were nasty there was one in particular that was like by far the worst conversation that I've ever had with an investor. Like, I mean, just berating me on this call, saying, I don't know what these things are. You know, it was just, it was just shocking. Um, I found out later that this happened to another black woman, right? I don't know if it's happened to non-black women. This investor only invests in women. Um, but like, so those, those things do, do happen. But I think by and large, it was just like, focus on you, your story, like your, 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 your vision, right? Like what you're building and try not to let that get you. It's hard enough to raise no matter who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I say like, go in, there was some, there was one guy who he said something like about, oh, this is a cute business or something. Mm-hmm. And I was like, it's not cute. You know, and I, I specifically <laughs> called him out. I said, I said, it's not cute. I said, this is a $210 billion market. It's not cute. Right. You know, right. Um, and what we're building is not cute. You know? And so it was like, I had to say that. And I said, I, I said, I know you see a woman here, you know, and you see we're doing something that's in events and it's fun and it seems like, oh, this is a cutesy thing. But companies are spending so much money. Like the system is broken, right? And like really got them into that. So and I got the second meeting on that call. They did not invest, <laughs> um, but I at least felt proud of myself for like standing up for myself. Like when he said that, the other investor who was really nasty, I also stood up for myself in that situation and went to the other investors um, at that company and said, hey, this really bad thing happened and you need to know about it. Right. And that company actually did invest um, and is one of our biggest investors, super value add investor. We do not have to work with that person. So it's, it, it definitely happens. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, keep your skin tough. Yeah. Say something when it does speak. I'm, I'm a huge fan of speaking up when right. those kind of things happen. And yeah, and just find the people who mess with you. There's so many funds now that are focused specifically on black women, on people of color, mm-hmm. on women. Find those funds, mm-hmm. find, find the networks, find the tribes. Okay, good deal. Good deal. So I want to bring this back uh, to you, Tony, um, in terms of you've seen many, many great founders. So tell us what you feel the difference is in terms of being a founder of color, a black founder out here pitching, um, raising money versus those that are not. It's networks. Networks. Mm -hmm. It really is. Uh, I've thought about this a lot and people say, well, what's the difference? And I'm like, to me, (laughs) you know, I'm an engineer and I'm a finance guy. Mm-hmm. I really don't care what you look like or where you came from if I'm going to get a 10x return on my investment. Mm-hmm. But I understand I probably didn't get the gene of being able to discriminate against people because they look a certain way or sound a certain way. I don't care. Mm-hmm. I never have cared. Mm-hmm. But I understand that's not typical. But I think your stories, April and Sonia, are so fundamental to the idea that Clark Atlanta University's motto is find a way or, or make, make one. one. Yes. <laughs> yep. You, you know, I can't mind. emphasize enough how important it is to be 
a good steward of your time and energy and health mm -hmm. yes. to find the people who are your tribe. Mm -hmm. They may not look like you. They may not mm -hmm. be geographically adjacent to you. But most of them will say on a website or their LinkedIn profile what tribe they belong to. Yeah. And if you keep mining into that tribe, you're eventually going to find somebody. Now, yeah, we as non-white men don't have the history, the experience, the relatives, the network, or the social connections that they do. That people in Silicon Valley who've been investing in angel investing for 50 years have. We don't have that further west, further east. But not having it today is never an excuse for not getting after it. Mm -hmm. And the mm -hmm. two months that you took to raise actually doesn't surprise me because of the specificity and advanced prep that you had as an attorney who's trained to portray a story a certain way, as a successful entrepreneur because you had traction, as a person who had networks through Google and Techstars, I mean, that narrows the playing field yeah. really, really pretty well right there. Only other thing you could have said is you did Y Combinator too. And I'd have been like, well, you would have raised in 15 minutes. <laughs> and to Sonia's point, I'm glad you said it the way you said it, because if people don't like you, they're not gonna be good investors mm -hmm. for you. Because mm -hmm. if I may make a friendly amendment to what you said, you said, it's like you're getting married to the person. I would submit to you that it's easier to get divorced from somebody than it is to get rid of an equity investor. So it's like you're getting super married <laughs> to your investors. So you have to be super careful about what's going on. Fortunately, the transaction is a little, a little more well-defined <laughs> as an investor in your term sheet and your subscription document. Yo. But nonetheless, you're going to be with this person through thick and thin, through sickness and health, till death or an exit do you part. Mm -hmm. And if you don't think about the counterparty that you're talking to like that, you're gonna wind up in a dysfunctional relationship and it's not gonna work out. Right. Or it's not likely to work out. So you wanna stack the deck as best you can by spending all your time responding to people who respond to you, folks who are gonna mess with you, and being equally and maybe more assertive, aggressive, forceful, cutthroat with the people who are not. I only suggest, and I talked to April about this before, the only thing I would have done, I wouldn't have wasted the time trying to explain it to them. I'd have been mm -hmm. like, okay, thank you, next. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. we all have to do it our own way, and it worked out for you in the second part. Indeed it did. So Tony, what um, advice would you give or what would you suggest in terms of to other investors in terms of leveling the landscape for black founders to other investors mm -hmm. oh why do i want to give them my secrets <laughs> <laughs> um i i i would say to other investors check your preconceived notions mm. I would have them read the book by Adam Grant of Think Again. Mm -hmm. Because we are all wired to make decisions in a heartbeat when somebody walks through the door. Mm -hmm. They either look like Uncle Billy or they remind us of that girl we dated that one time 
or you're triggered because they sound or look just like somebody you had a bad experience with. And if it's an investor, oh, I invested in this once before and it was a rotten mess. You have to be able, like a good quarterback or any good athlete, have a short memory for things that don't count and assess what's in front of you on the merits that are being brought to you mm-hmm. and balance that between your cumulative knowledge and factual knowledge mm-hmm. of what you've accumulated so far. So, you know, we talk about unconscious bias. Mm-hmm. I think for investors who are not able to encapsulate and seal that bias off in a box mm-hmm. and look at each new entrepreneur based on the merits that he or she brings to you, you're gonna fail mm-hmm. because you're gonna be looking for what worked last time. Right. And that's in the rearview mirror. It's not coming again. Right. It's always new stuff. You can't judge NFTs or metaverse opportunities based on your investment in shared workspace mm-hmm. products. Totally Those different. things are gone. These things are the kind of things in the front windshield. So Absolutely. having a short memory, but balancing it with your accumulative experience is what, what you need to do to be successful. Thank you for listening to the Equity Raise podcast from the American Underground in Durham, North Carolina. If you like this show, please rate, review, and share with your networks. We want to spread the word that although VC funding goes to a small fraction of women and people of color, it does not have to be this way. So we'll continue these conversations to make a change. This podcast was edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Naya Fela Powell. Make it a utopian day. <laughs>